Good morning. Happy New Year. It is good to be back. It is good to be uh, able to jump back into the book of John. We started the book of John last decade, for those of you who are paying attention. But even though we are continuing the book of John, I'd also like to point out that we are beginning chapter 12, which seems to be a place where Jesus has spent the past 11 chapters documented through three years of His earthly ministry, and now over the next 11 chapters, we're really going to be covering about 50 days of Jesus' life, His death, His resurrection, and His appearances. So I'd like to tell you to begin the new year, to begin the new decade, that being the lead pastor of Church of the Valley, my name's Tim, is one of my dreams, not to be named Tim, but to be the lead pastor of Church of the Valley. And it has been a dream to come, it's been a dream come true to be able to point us towards Jesus. It is the greatest honor and privilege I believe I'll ever have in this life, but I am especially grateful for our team of elders, our staff and the many volunteer leaders and servants we have at Church of the Valley as this new decade begins. But I want to challenge you all with focusing, and this is something you're going to hear a lot from us, focusing on the kingdom of God this year and this decade with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, because when you focus on the kingdom of God, all of a sudden you become more urgent. See, here at COV, this isn't going to be a surprise to anyone who's been here, we believe that Jesus is the point. We believe Jesus lived the life that we could not live. He died the death, the sinner's death, that even though he was without sin, he died on a cross for our sins, and he, showed, he victoriously rose from the grave on the third day. He showed himself to hundreds of people over 40 days. He ascended to heaven. One day he's coming back in all his glory to judge the living and the dead, and we believe all of this happened because Jesus wanted to bring the kingdom of God here to earth where Jesus is king. And those who are adopted into his family and are residents of the kingdom where Jesus Christ reigns and rules as the king of kings and the Lord of lords, that's what we get to practice today as God's people. So I don't know what you're focused on as this new decade begins, but I implore you to focus on the king of the kingdom of God because that is where I believe the Lord is leading us as his people here at COV. So if you feel that we've been too focused, we've been too serious about Jesus up until this point, buckle up, buttercup, because you have seen nothing yet. Let's pray. God, it is good to be with your people. It is good to be able to worship you corporately. It is good to be able to open your word and trust that you're going to change something in us. So God, may you use my my feeble effort, would you use the hearts of man and woman to be a people who want to do whatever you tell us to do? God, would you be glorified in this time? Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So every once in a while, I like to start a sermon with my point of the sermon. And here it is. Let me give you my one point, which we're going to build the entire message on. What we believe will dictate how we behave. What we truly believe will dictate how we behave. So John chapter 12 begins where we really left off in chapter 11, which was all about the supernatural event of Jesus raising his good friend Lazarus from the dead. 
Lazarus has been dead. He's been in a tomb for four days where decay had set in, and Jesus did not rush to his friend's side when he found out that he, his friend Lazarus was sick, even though he was questioned by Lazarus' sisters, Mary and Martha. But then Jesus went to Lazarus' tomb, and he raised Lazarus to life. And he did all of this to point back to John chapter 11, verse 4. He did all of this for a reason. Here's what it says. When he heard this, that Lazarus was sick, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. So the raising of Lazarus was so the Son of God would be glorified through this miraculous event in history, and so that we could believe God at His Word. We see this, as Jesus says earlier on in John chapter 11 to His disciples. He said, so He tells them plainly, Lazarus is dead, verse 14, and then verse 15, and for your sake, I'm glad I was not there, so that you may in bold believe, emphasis mine, but let us go to Him. He says this to His disciples to accentuate the fact that this event would be one that God would use so that people could believe that Jesus truly is the Messiah, that Jesus is truly God in the flesh. Then as Jesus speaks to Lazarus' sister, Martha, He says this, just a few verses later in verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you, Martha, believe this. He points out to how imperative it is for Martha and others to believe that Jesus is the Son, that Jesus is God with skin, and it is a matter of life or death spiritually. Then, when Jesus was at the graveside of Lazarus, speaking to Martha again, here's what he says in verse 40, chapter 11, then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? Martha and Mary, and all those who heard about this event of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead are given this invitation to believe in the one true God by placing, by faith, by placing their trust in Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Then in verse 41, as he's at the graveside, let's look at what happens. So they took away the stone, verse 41 Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may, what's that word? Believe that you sent me. See, believing is really the common theme of John chapter 11. In the late raising of Lazarus, Jesus did all of this so that people would have the opportunity to, what's that word? Believe. And as we study today, what you believe dictates how you behave, not the other way around. It was for belief in Jesus that Jesus didn't rush to Lazarus' side to heal him before he died. It was for belief in Jesus that made it so Martha could understand who Jesus is by his teachings and his miracles. It was belief in Jesus that created a stir around Jerusalem that the Messiah had come. And as we studied at the end of chapter 11, it was because of belief in Jesus that the officials and the governing authorities wanted to stop and kill Jesus. As we see beginning in verse 45, here's what it says. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary had seen what Jesus did and believed in him. 
verse 46. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. So what are these officials insecure about? They're insecure, they're fearful, because they're afraid they're going to lose their power because people were believing in Jesus. Why? Because Jesus doesn't come and just make you over. Jesus comes and takes you over, and I think they had an understanding that these people believing in Jesus, it was changing everything for them. Verse 53, so from that day on, they plotted to take his life Therefore, Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the people of Judea. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the wilderness to a village called Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples. And when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, many went up from the country to Jerusalem for their ceremonial cleansing before the Passover. They kept looking for Jesus, and as they stood in the temple courts, they asked one another, what do you think? Isn't he going to come to the festival at all? But the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that anyone who found out where Jesus was should report it so that they might arrest him. So that's where we left back off all the way back in the last decade, in November, in chapter 11. So today we're going to begin chapter 12 with the understanding that all that Jesus has done, all that Jesus has said is so that you may believe just what John says at the beginning of his book and the end of his book. In John chapter 1, verse 12, Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And then at the end of the book, something that we see pretty often, we've talked about this a lot, at the end of his letter in chapter 20, verse 30, he says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. And by believing, it dictates how we behave, and we'll see that in the short story of Jesus encountering Mary and a few others. So here we go, chapter 12, verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Six days before the Passover, John makes known it's the Passover. uh, This was probably on a Friday that this was taking place as the Passover was on a Saturday. And Jesus had performed this huge miracle, and the government was looking to kill Jesus. And what does he do? He returns to the place where the people in which wanted to kill him were. He returns to the place where the miraculous event took place. There is a warrant out for Jesus' arrest, and what does he do? He goes and spends some time with his friends. There is no more Dominic Toretto moment in all of Scripture than right here. Does anyone get that? Okay, praise God. Thank you, Ray. Verse 2, here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. There was a banquet. There was a party being thrown in Jesus' honor, but where was it? Well, if we look at the other gospel accounts, which we always recommend that you do whenever we come up with a theology and understanding of Scripture, we always allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. But the other gospel accounts shed some light. Matthew, or Levi, writes in Matthew 26, verse 6, while Jesus was in Bethany in the home of Simon the leper, 
a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. Hmm. Mark also adds to this event and says that it was at Simon the leper's home. But as we're going to see in a few verses, John accounts that the perfume covered Jesus' feet, and Matthew and Mark both say that it covered his head. But we'll talk about that in a second. Who's Simon the leper? Guess what? People argue about this. People aren't really sure. A bunch of different people. There are arguments aplenty. But let's start with, I'm pretty sure Simon the leper didn't have leprosy anymore. All right? Just put that out there. You know why I think that? Because Levitical law said if someone had leprosy, you shun them, you put them away, you put them somewhere else because that is catchy and they need to be quarantined and away from general society. So who's this former leper? Well, his name's Simon. And it can be assumed that it was someone possibly that Jesus healed as he was healing people throughout the countryside. Some might even go as far to say that Simon was Lazarus, Mary, and Martha's dad, as they assume this is the same home as Lazarus's, but even that isn't for sure, as John states that Lazarus was reclining at the table. But Martha, she served, which seemed to become a bit of an identifying mark of who Martha is, as there is another story of Martha and Mary where Martha seems to be focused on the work where Mary seems to be focused on Jesus. So, think of that word focus as I read this passage. Here's what it says in Luke chapter 10. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened, why would you say that name, opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. This totally sounds like my kids. They're not in the service, right? Praise God. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better and will not be taken away from her. Now, I have heard this passage taught so improperly. I've heard people say that because of this passage, we don't have to work. The problem with that's the rest of the Bible. Working isn't necessary is what some people will say when they look at this passage, but that's not what this passage is about. It's about focus. If justifying yourself by what you do is your focus rather than focusing on Jesus and worshiping him for what he has done, you have gravely missed the gospel. So where is your focus, church? On what you can do for the Lord or what the Lord has already done for you. And we see a few times where Martha tends to focus on what she has to do rather than who Jesus is. But as we see in John chapter 11, Martha understood who Jesus is probably better than most people. In John chapter 11, verse 23, Jesus is talking to Martha and he says, your brother, verse 23, will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? And Martha responds with such a great response. Verse 27, yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come into 
the world. Martha missed it for a while, but we see her with a confession that is so powerful, that is so true. Do you believe that I am the resurrection and the life? Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, and that you've come into the world. Verse 3, then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. So here we go. This is the event which is remembered. This is the event that this passage seems to focus on. And Mary does this prophetically, like Caiaphas, and she doesn't even know it. And we'll get back to that in just a moment. But she anoints Jesus' feet, which was an act of worship. But as Jesus will reply, this was because his body was to be anointed prior to his crucifixion. This was customary for his body to be anointed. So the passage says that she took out a pint of pure nard, which as John states, was a very expensive perfume, which didn't mean to her what it meant to someone who maybe focuses more on their, uh, their 401k or on the money that they have. And not only does she expend this expensive, luxurious perfume onto Jesus' body, but she wipes his feet with her hair. And this is a true posture of worship. A true posture of worship is to care less about your dignity than you do about getting, than God getting the praise that he is due. See, that's what worship looks like. I always think it's funny that when I come here and I preach, you guys walk into the building, no one forced you to be here, in theory, and, and you, you come into this place and we have microphones and we sing songs and we open the Bible and I tell you you're all sinners and you need to repent, okay? That's, that's, that's what you can look forward to on a Sunday, just putting that out there, just making it really simple. But the irony is because we come into a church and do it, it doesn't seem that weird. Now, if I was on the street corner doing the exact same thing, and no one was around, that would seem super weird. And I'm not a big street corner guy. I, I like doing it in here where you guys come in and, you know, there's a heater. But, but the thing is that when you truly worship God, your posture is one of humiliation. You are willing, you want God to get all the glory that he's due. It's not about how, how much dignity you have. See, you don't come to God with your head held high. You come submitted, understanding that you're in desperate need of him. So we have Mary, who has this true posture of worship. As she wipes his feet with her hair. See, in John, it states that Mary poured this perfume on his feet, while the other gospel writer said it was his head. And here's what I would contend. Mary anointed both, but John wanted to emphasize Jesus' feet and that she wiped his feet with her hair because this is a posture of worship. Let's unpack that for a second. I think we can focus on the expense of this perfume, and it was expensive, which the next verse will address, but let's not skip the posture that Mary had to wipe Jesus' feet with her hair. This is in the context where people walked around with what? Did they have Nikes? No. They had sandals or they were barefoot, and they walked around on unpaved streets. They walked around on roads where different animals walked, and here's going to be two great words that you don't normally get to hear in a sermon, where these animals defecated and left excrement everywhere. See, there you go. That's, hopefully, that's not your takeaway. 
And there were all these nasty things that were left on the ground, including dirt and mud, as people would follow animals or ride on animals or walk alongside animals, and their feet would get incredibly dirty. And these are the feet that Mary is cleaning. Jesus didn't use his miraculous power to clean his feet whenever he wanted to. He was 100% God, but he was also 100% man, and these feet were well-traveled. These feet were sweating on top of the sandals that had picked up all the grime from the road, and Mary not only anoints them, she dries his feet with her hair. Now, ladies, you might not own really expensive perfume. Maybe you do, but how much money and time do you invest in your hair? Come on, let's be real. This is an act of worship and one that too many of us skip over because we think that we can come to Christ with our heads held high as if we did something to be saved. One thing I know I am not, one thing I know I'm learning more every day is that I am not deserving of Christ. I'm not deserving of Him to do what he's done for me. I'm not deserving to know him the way that I do. I don't deserve to have him hang on a cross for my sin. I don't deserve to be in right standing with a holy and perfect God, yet that's the point. God shows off when he saves sinners like you and me because if we deserved it, it wouldn't be grace. But God gave us grace in Jesus Christ. We got what we didn't deserve Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, but because of his great love for us, God, and in ESV, extra spiritual version, it says, but God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace, getting what you do not deserve, that you've been saved, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Why? Verse 7, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Why does he save sinners like you and me? To show off how good he is. And if you don't like that, I'm sorry, but my God is good. And I don't want any of us to miss the point of the gospel. And the best way that we miss the point of the gospel is we begin to believe in ourselves rather than Jesus. Let me let that stick for a second. Because that probably stings. Because I think a lot of us just think we're supposed to believe in ourselves. And yet, Jesus is the point. And we believe in him. And we trust him. See, you do nothing that makes you desirable to God. I love you enough to tell you that. I do nothing to make myself desirable to God, but God, who is rich in mercy, who is gracious beyond measure, who loved us while we were still dead in our sins, made us alive with Christ. He lifted us up with him, made us righteous because of Jesus, and this is all so you can understand that it's all God. I got to spend time with my stepdad, my family and I did, uh, with my stepdad down in L.A. this past week. And here's the thing about my stepdad. His name is Don. He's probably one of the main contributors in an earthly sense to my knowing Jesus. Not because the way he lives perfect and I look at him and just go, oh, I want to be saved. That's not at all. He'd be the first to tell you he's not a good person. Not because he quoted verses at me and then unpacked them in such an eloquent, eloquent way that I all of a sudden could understand what he was saying, 
But here's why he's probably the biggest contributor to my salvation out of anyone on earth. Because there's no one else on earth who has prayed for me more than he has, that I would know Christ. He prayed that I'd know him. And once I became a Christian, he prayed that I would use my story for God's glory. I didn't mean for that to rhyme. And once I got married, he prayed that I would, and started to have kids, he prayed that I would lead my family and serve them in a godly manner. And then when I became a pastor of a church, he prayed that I would not let my ministry overshadow my sonship in Christ. And we got to have this wonderful lunch where I got to confess to you guys, I mean, listen, I got to confess, I ate way too many fries. Thanks, Red Robin. But then after we ate, we went back to the house where we started to exchange Christmas presents that we had gotten for each other. And we did what we've done for close to 30 years. We talked and caught up about things going on in our life. We talked about now our relationship with God. And it was interesting to me that my two older daughters wanted to sit around and listen to us discuss our common salvation and faith. And as we talked, I reminded him of probably the greatest gift that I had ever received intellectually, and, and please don't put this slide up yet, but there is this gift that I received intellectually that is the greatest gift, and I don't know what you think. Like, when you hear that, you probably think uh, a deeper knowledge of the Bible, and man, that's huge, and that's good, or maybe it's the un- evidence and the understanding of the resurrection, and both of those are so imperative to my spiritual walk and knowledge of the true Jesus that I follow and love, but the greatest gift I have ever received intellectually is simply knowing that I'm a sinner. Oh, how good that is, that I've committed cosmic treason against a holy and infinite and perfect God, and the gift isn't just knowing the problem, but that by God's grace alone, through faith alone, He has opened my eyes to the solution alone, which is Christ Jesus alone. Jesus, in His finished work of living a perfect and sinless life, dying a sacrificial and ransom pain death, and victoriously rising triumphantly from the grave, this is what makes me right with God, not because it just happened, but because I believe it. See, we all have a pretty high view of ourselves, both prior to Christ and once we come into relationship with Him. But the more that we trust, obey, and follow Jesus, we ought to realize it's not 50-50. It's all Him and none of us. So when we sin, we realize that Jesus made a way for that to be paid for, but also to no longer rule and reign over our lives because we have a new king, and that king's name is Jesus. Verse 4, but one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objective, uh, objected. Of course Judas objected. The Gospels, but John in particular, there's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John in particular did a pretty great job, and understandably so, throwing shade on Judas whenever he could. Because Judas was dominated by the flesh. Judas was dominated by the devil. Judas was dominated by his greed, and he chose to sell out Jesus for a small amount of treasure. Verse 5, this is Judas speaking. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It's worth a year's wages. What a fair question, Judas asks. 
I think most people think this way, but I think there is this assumption that when we are wasteful, it could have been used for another purpose. The fact is that Judas wasn't thinking about that at all. He was not thinking about the poor, but as the next verse explains, when money was given to the ministry, Judas would skim off the top. There seems to be few things that most people generally consider unredeemable, but one thing that the consensus is, is when you take from the poor to give to the rich. That's something that most people, or, or you take from the poor to, to make it so other people can have more lavish things. It's no surprise that we at Church of the Valley seem to be in conflict with a specific gospel known as the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel is a false teaching that attempts to rid people of their money so that people who are teaching supposedly the Bible can prosper. See, Paul says to the church in Corinth, here's what he says in 1 Corinthians 9. He says, don't you know that those who serve in the temple get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in what is offered on the altar? In the same way, the Lord has commanded those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. But the prosperity teaching takes this to a new level. Uh, I didn't ask his permission, but he said amen for service, so I guess it's okay. Pastor Mike and I both made significantly higher incomes to support our families prior to serving in full time. Can I get a witness? We did. We did. But I'd say we both consider what we make today as ministers of the gospel far enough to survive on even here in the Bay Area. But we don't do what we do for the money nor should anyone in paid ministry. We do what we do because we believe in the cause of Christ, and by God's specific calling in our lives, we are to minister and proclaim the word to people. The fact that people are dying without Jesus is a real problem. That those in the church are not being looked after is a real problem. That the word of God does not have ultimate authority over the lives of God's people is a real problem. But all of that's the result of prosperity teaching. The actual teaching is that God wants nothing more than to bless you with riches. He wants to bless you with comforts. He wants to give you pleasures of this world. Now listen, I like comfort. Did anyone want to stay in bed this morning? Come on, let's be real. Me and a bunch of liars. Don't be lying in 2020. I love comfort, but comfort is not the ultimate goal of a Christian. Let me say that again. Comfort is not the ultimate goal of a Christian, nor is it the benefit of being God's people. God's glory is the goal. And God doesn't have to give us comfort because God gives us himself. And that's the point, which is the ultimate gift that none of us should take for granted. But let's get back to John chapter 12 and Judas. Verse 6, he did not say this because he cared about the poor. Can you just hear John kind of writing? He did not say this like, but because he was a thief, as keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Uncircumcised Philistine, that's essentially what he said. Anyway, so Judas' motives were evil is what we see from John. He didn't heed the example of how much if he sold the perfume, would that provide for anyone who was without wealth or comfort? But his whole goal was if they sold it, he'd have direct access to the profits for himself. Verse 7, here's Jesus' reply. Leave her alone. It was intended that she should save the perfume for the day of my burial. 
Mary, under the compulsion of the Holy Spirit, kept this perfume to anoint Jesus' body, not knowing that her act of worship was actually going to be the precursor to Jesus' death and resurrection. See, this similar in chapter 11, we see Caiaphas, the great high priest, great high priest, who spoke words that he did not realize that were prophetic. So John chapter 11, verse 49, then one of them named Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, spoke up, you know nothing at all. You do not realize that it's better for you that one man die for the people than the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own, John writes. But as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together to make them one. Hallelujah. So Caiaphas and now Mary were both led by God to do or say something that had far greater meaning than what they intended when they said or did it. And Jesus rebukes Judas and anyone else who jumps on this bandwagon to condemn her for such a lavish expression of worship. Verse 8, here's what Jesus says, you will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. This is a direct quote from Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 11, where Moses writes, there will always be poor people in the land. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed towards your fellow Israelites who are poor and needy in your land. I don't want you to miss this because the gospel is not prosperity and the gospel is not social. What Deuteronomy implies is that the poor will always be around, so do not be close-fisted with your resources as if to say the Holy Spirit cannot call on you to serve them. I think we, become, we can become so religious when it comes to the poor. We do one extreme or the other by either creating this justification of ourselves by trying to help any and every person that is without resources, all the way to the other extreme of helping literally no one because we just assume that all the people who are poor got it because they deserve it. Listen, I, as your pastor, I challenge you to be generous with your resources, however the Spirit of God leads you. But never, ever consider your work for the poor as your key card into heaven. But what Jesus implies here as he quotes the Hebrew Scriptures in Deuteronomy is that Jesus is not always going to be around. So this one-time expression of worship through this expensive perfume that is a precursor to his body being broken for the sins of mankind is warranted. Check it. It's accepted by Jesus once again as a man accepts worship. 100% God, 100% man. So either Jesus is God in the flesh who accepts worship and forgives people of their sins, or he is a demon from the depths of hell who misleads people away from the true God. And that is the true question when it comes to Jesus. Who is he really? You may say he's king. You may even, because you've heard other people say it, say he's alpha and omega. You don't even know what that means that he is above and through and over and in all things. But church, how do you act? Because our belief dictates how we behave. And if one claims they are a worshiper of the true God, yet resist to worship him, obey him, and follow him, I'd contend your belief is questionable. In fact, the Bible does. 
The half-brother of Jesus says it this way, James. He says in James chapter 2, verses 14 and six, through 16, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds, has no actions, can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food, and if one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? You see someone who's hurting, you claim you care, you go up to them, give them a high five, and you walk away, guess what? You don't care. And James is not communicating that we fix every person who is in need, but if we claim we care and we do nothing to care, do we really care? Probably not. That's James's point. Those who claim that Jesus is Lord and truly believe Him will act as if He is Lord because they believe Him. Verse 9, meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came, not only because of Him, but also to see Lazarus, whom He had raised from the dead. See, these people had heard about Jesus. They had heard about Lazarus, who had been in a grave for four days, and this crowd wanted to look for themselves. They wanted to get a peek. They wanted to know what all the commotion was about. Well, guess what? The commotion was about Jesus. His reputation had gone out to many people. There were thousands that were clamoring to get a peek at this man who had performed miracles, this man who had taught about the kingdom of God and such authority, with such authority, and his celebrity was becoming more and more celebrated. Jesus, in our context, he had more views, more shares, more likes than ever before. Our Jesus had gone viral, and people just wanted to get a glimpse of this man who had come from God and was God and is God. They wanted to see the evidence of this miracle work in Lazarus, who laid in a grave for four days and now was alive. Verse 10, so the chief priest made plans to kill Lazarus as well. Would you look at that? The chief priests would do anything to remove from the remembrance this miracle that Jesus had performed, so much so that they would kill an innocent man in Lazarus, which again is a precursor to the crucifixion and resurrection where, which is about to take place where truly the most innocent man in all of history would be tried, convicted, and executed because he came to bring the kingdom of God to earth. Verse 11. For on account of him, Lazarus, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. So here's what I don't want you to miss. There it is again. The economy in which Jesus came to bring much wealth. You ready? Here's, here's my get-rich-quick scheme. You ready? The fact that believing in and believing Jesus was all that was required to be made right with God. You want to be rich in the kingdom? Believe God. That's it. God's economy is that you would believe in the one whom he has sent. And yet the most religious, the most pious people all around, the chief priests, the high priests, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, all thought that they could work their way to God, and because of their pride, they could not believe that the one God sent worked his way to them. And because of this miracle, it wasn't an accident, nor it wasn't just some simple thing that took place. It was the most extravagant, evident miracle to date where Lazarus being in the grave for four days, starting to decay, starting to smell, having no life in him for over 80 hours, Jesus says, come out of the grave, Lazarus, and Lazarus, who was dead, walks out of the grave. And many upon many saw this 
Many upon many heard about this. Many upon many believed, not just in the miracle, but in the miracle worker who had accomplished what no one else could, which was power over death. So you've got this uproar of the religious, and you've got a crowd that wants to believe, and yet in Jesus, he no way at all shrinks back from where he is headed. As we're going to study next week, he comes into the town where he will be put to death with his head held high, riding on a colt, fully embracing his destiny for the people who will eventually disown him. That is our God. That is our King, the one who did for us what we could not do for ourselves, thus so we could believe him. God's economy is that you would believe in the one whom he has sent. And by believing in him, you would have life in his name.